won't tell you about my Wordle, but I will tell you about my Google search this week. How many of you guys did Google searches this week? Right? So I did a Google search this week on contentment in America. Ooh, yeah, what do you think I found? Well, from the Wall Street Journal to UCLA Medical to Johns Hopkins to Harvard Business, I found a myriad of articles. And it was interesting because they, they weren't just talking about current day, but I found ones that were talking from all the way back from like World War I and the Roaring Twenties and then the Great Depression and then World War II and ones that started prior to that and spanned the whole period of like the Industrial Revolution to ones that then talked about modernization. And over and over, I was so intrigued by the fact that every generation had something that was said about them within our country about contentment or really the lack thereof. But that every generation since that, like, stuff was reported and recorded and written, there's just been this reality that we're searching and longing for something to find and to bring us contentment. And yet we get to that phase and we overcome that thing and we get through that season and we move beyond. And yet the thing that we thought was going to bring this contentment all of a sudden leaves us still wanting. I found one that I thought was really interesting just because it was speaking about the last 40 years and, you know, is involved in most of our lives, most of our lifetimes. I, just, I want to read a little bit about it, and the title actually is this, Discontentment in Prosperous America. He says this, and this was written prior to the pandemic, mind you, so give a little, a little grace there, but not, not too far prior. And he said this, he said, barring the fact that this has been said since time immemorial, uh, what evidence is there to support this that we should be the most content people? He says, virtually none, despite all these things. The income of the average American has risen drastically in real terms in the last 40 years. He didn't put a percentage on it. He didn't talk about inflation, but he's saying in real terms, we're far more wealthier in the income now than we were 40 years ago. He says the average home in America is 1,000 square feet bigger than it used to be 40 years ago despite the fact that our families are smaller. The average American diet is 500 more calories per person than it was 40 years ago. The average American turned a wheel multiple times to call someone 40 years ago, but now we have these smartphones in our pockets and we can do anything we want, basically. We can reach anyone in the world, we can get any information, any media, it all fits in the palm of our hand. He even goes on to talk about life expectancy has gone up over a decade in the last 40 years. Emissions has plummeted in the last 40 years. Is healthcare too expensive? Yes. Is education too expensive? Yes. Do we have inequalities and injustices in our society? A resounding yes. But none of that can obscure the absolutely stunning material advances that we have made in the last four decades. And yet, look how dissatisfied everyone still is. Look how dissatisfied everyone still is. It was interesting because as I was preparing to give our last talk today on the book of Philippians, um, Philippians chapter 4, I thought it was kind of interesting that Paul, as we looked at two weeks ago, he talks about God's peace, and this week he's going to talk about God's provision and contentment. But what I found interesting was I was wrestling with and preparing for this and thinking, if this is a letter, right, of friendship, this is a letter of encouragement, why would Paul use his last words in this letter to this church when he doesn't know if he's going to live tomorrow or die tomorrow, right? Because he's, he's awaiting trial before the Roman the highest court. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or he's going to die. He doesn't know if he's ever going to see them again face to face. So he's writing this letter and he's sending it back with Epaphroditus. 
And he chooses to use his very last chapter, the very last segments and sections of this last chapter to this people that he loves to talk to them about contentment in God's provision. And again, that to me was curious until I actually, again, did that Google search and realized every single generation since the beginning, again, of written record has wrestled with this reality. If we have greater advancement, greater wealth, greater things, greater access, greater whatever you name it, again, all the injustices are still in the midst of it, but yet we still struggle with contentment. And I wonder if in Paul's day it was the same. I wonder if in the 50s AD that it was the same. Here's this church about 10 years old living in Philippi, which again is a port city on a river, on a body of water, quite wealthy, diverse. They've got military presence. They're connected to Rome. They've got this Roman citizenship that they can brag in. They've got all the advancements and all the things that they would want in their society in their day. And I wonder if they were wrestling too with this reality of the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God and his provision for them. And if somehow he had heard maybe from Epaphroditus who had delivered a gift to them that he had heard, on one hand, things are going great in this church, but on the other hand, boy, oh boy, there's, there's, there's discontentment. And I wonder if Paul, after all, is actually responding to some things that he heard going on in the community. With that said, we're going to jump in this morning. We are. We're going to look at this last section of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I hope that as we read this, we can talk about a few, a few things practically with in, the, in vain with what we sang this morning, that my, my shame is gone, my guilt is gone, I, I'm not condemned. I stand free in the blood of Christ, and yet I want to talk about, I think Paul talks about the reality of what, is it, what does it mean for us to live content or acknowledge discontentment in the provision of God in our lives. And so Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4. I want to invite you to read it with me. We're going to read verses 10 to 23, and then we'll, we'll unpack it a bit. And Paul says this. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any circumstance, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. My final greetings greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul, again, is writing this letter. His main purpose is not to talk about thanksgiving necessarily. It's to encourage them, and it's to talk about joy and the joy that we have in Christ. And yet again, here in the closing, Paul brings his focus into God's provision and what that speaks to or means for us as followers of Jesus and the way that we can live with contentment. Again, the greater context here is that this church is 10 years old and the Philippians shared a special relationship with Paul. You could kind of say that it was a, it was a, a give and take relationship in, in the healthy sense of the word. 
that Paul had come about 10 years prior and he had proclaimed the gospel. They received it in joy. And Paul tells us here as we were reading through that as he left there and he went on to Thessalonica, the next place that he was called to plant, they, the Philippians gave, gave gifts and they supported him. That they were generous, that they were gracious, that, that they, their response to the gospel was gratitude and to want to partner with him in that. And so they gave in a way that supported Paul and allowed him to move on and continue the second missionary journey that he had been called on. And yet Paul tells us here in the beginning, he says, I haven't received anything from you for a while. And he goes on to say, that's okay, but I, I take joy in the fact that you have revived your concern for me. And I was reading through and looking at why, why did they not give for a while? What was going on? Some were saying that there was economic hardship that was taking place in the region around this time. And so potentially it was economic hardship that impacted the whole region and prevented uh, them from giving a gift recently in the last five, six, seven years, whatever it was. Or maybe it was the fact that, again, Philippi and where Paul is in prison is 800 miles away, and maybe there just wasn't somebody practically that could make that journey in, in time enough. You know, and so they had to wait until finally Epaphroditus uh, was available. Whatever it was, there was something, there was some obstacle that had prevented them from sending uh, support during this season to Paul. And so Paul starts off by saying, I'm rejoicing in the Lord greatly that now, after some length of time, I've received Epaphroditus, I've received your gift, and it shows me again just who you are in your heart of faith and, and where you're putting your faith, your worth, and your value. You can imagine for Paul receiving the, this gift, how, how great that made him feel. And yet, as we read this, as expressive as Paul is about gratitude, as effusive he is about wanting to thank them and call them to joy, Paul actually says here that what he's actually grateful for and what he's rejoicing in is not that they've brought him a gift, but what that gift says about their heart. And what Paul's going to talk to us a lot about is gifts and giving and contentment. Again, not so much focused on the gifts themselves, but on what it shows about the heart of the giver and what it shows about the heart of the receiver and how all of that is tied into contentment in the Lord. You tracking with me for a minute here? And so Paul jumps in and he says this, talking about this gift. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and of facing hunger, abundance and need. Basically, Paul is giving us, I feel like, a true picture of life, right? Isn't life a little bit like this? Isn't it kind of just a roller coaster? You have your highs and you have your lows. And Paul said, I've experienced all of that. Again, if you think about who Paul is, and remember the, the bragging that he did in, in chapter 3 where he talked about who he was, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Jew of Jews. I mean, he had risen to this level of, of Pharisee, right, where Paul would have had basically anything he wanted, if you think about it. The power, the wealth, the prestige. Paul, he's saying, I, I know all of that. And remember, where's he writing right now? He's in a Roman prison. He's way down here. Paul has had seasons where people partnered with him in his ministry and they gave him great gifts. Paul has had seasons, like for the last bit, where he's had pretty much nothing. And Paul is saying to them, in the midst of this reality of life that can be both up and down, plentiful or lacking, he's saying, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Let's talk about this word content for a little bit. Content is this. It's self-inward sufficiency. And at first you go, that's, that's interesting. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Or inward adequacy. But here, here's what this self-inward sufficiency is. It's the sense of being satisfied because of living in God's fullness. Being content 
in God's content. Think about that for a second. Self-inward sufficiency. And the reason why I think that's interesting and we should think about it is because what does our culture praise often? Self-sufficiency, doesn't it? To be a people who say, I lack nothing, I have nothing, I need no one, I got this. I'm a self-made man, I'm a self-made woman, I've earned this stuff, I've got this stuff. And what Paul is actually talking about in the original definition of the word here puts it in just this major juxtaposition to the way that we often, again, think about contentment in our culture. It's contentment that is built or based on an inward adequacy that's found not actually in self, but it's contained within the self. Why? Because it's contained within the self where the life of the living God is. Paul says, I have found and I have learned that whatever the situation, the circumstance going on outside exterior-wise, inwardly, I have an inward adequacy, I have an inward self-sufficiency, no matter what's going on, and that's my contentment. What Paul shows us here is that contentment is not based upon necessity, meaning my needs are being met, nor based upon quantity. I have enough of what I think is enough, or what culture would tell me is enough. That true contentment is a self-contained reality that is found in a very specific place. Paul says, I've learned the secret of it. I want to tell you about that. He says this in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I bet if I were to poll you guys and say, give me one verse that you have, yeah, you see the smiles already. Give me one verse that you have memorized out of the book of Philippians, what would it be? Go ahead, say it with me. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Did you know that that verse, the context of it is Paul writing from prison and talking to us about contentment? Not about the physical things I'm about to do, not about the Super Bowl I'm about to go win, not about that home run I'm about to go jack over the fence, not about any of that stuff, but about my state of mental, emotional, spiritual contentment. Paul says the secret to actually being content, to realizing and understanding this inward self-sufficiency that you have as a follower of Jesus is because contentment is not about what you have, but it's about whom you have. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul says in low times and in high times, this is valid. Because satisfaction and sufficiency don't come again through the externals or even through myself, but it comes through myself that has been died with Christ and resurrected with Christ and acknowledging and understanding that Christ is with me, that Christ is for me. Paul says whatever needed to be faced or done or accomplished or suffered, Paul was confident that he could meet it, he could endure it, he could excel through it. Why? Because Christ was in him and he by faith was in Christ. Paul says, Christ's grace is sufficient for me in anything. Paul says, I believe that, Paul, that, that Christ's power rests on me and that that is my enablement in everything. Paul says, Christ himself right now, even in the midst of prison, is standing by me and he's supplying my every need. So the fact that it took you years to come along and partner and to give again, he goes, that's okay. And I'm writing to thank you, not because, again, I was actually in need, because I have learned that Christ is with me here, even in the worst of circumstances. But I'm rejoicing because it shows me what it your faith is and where your faith is placed. And I'm writing to share this with you to show you where my faith is, where my faith is placed, where true contentment comes from. 
Paul says, as he writes in other books, he says basically here, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, I believe is the same power that is at work in me. And so therefore, whether I have much or whether I have little, whether I'm abounding or whether I'm being abased, I've got reason to rejoice and I've got reason to be content because I know that Christ is with me and Christ is my strength. Christ is my source of life. Paul's basically reminding us that to be a follower of Christ is not to find, again, contentment in the things of the world and the externals, but it's to realize and to be satisfied in the fullness, the content of God that he has entrusted to you and to believe that his grace is sufficient in what he's given you. I think what's interesting here, again, because of the context, that just as when Paul was talking in the beginning of chapter 4 about um, peace and about anxiety, I don't believe he's saying there's nothing to be anxious about. He wasn't saying it then. And I don't believe he's saying even here that there's nothing to be discontent about. But again, he's defining for us where and how we find our contentment. So contentment doesn't come in a lack of conflict, right? Or some of us would say that in order for me to be content, there has to be complete and total peace around me. No conflict. No, Paul's in a place of great conflict, is he not? And yet, he's got contentment. Paul's not saying here that to be content is to settle. Some of us hear that. Like if in our culture we say, oh, just be content with that. Like you think that someone's like gaslighting you or just like, oh, just be, just be content. Just, just settle. No, no, no. Paul's not saying that either. We'll get to that in a minute. He's, he's not saying you're, you, just, you just deal with it. You tuck tail. You, 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 know, you, you endure. Roll over. No, no, no. Paul's not saying that's what contentment is either. But I think what Paul is addressing, and, and for us to speak on our culture, I want to talk a little about the enemies of contentment. I think the enemies of contentment that Paul would be pointing us to here would be this, a, a spirit of fear of this idea of not enough. And as I say that, we might think there's two ways to define that, right? I think the spirit of not enough shows up, and I'll just talk for my own life. There's times when I think uh, I, I have the spirit of not enough that causes me to be discontent in any number of things that God has entrusted to me. Because one, I'm thinking through a, a mindset of scarcity, okay? A scarcity mindset of a spirit of fear causes me to think that I'm never going to be enough or I'm never going to have enough or things are just never going to be okay because there's just not enough. And what it causes me to do is to grip and to try to control and to lead me in this place where I'm not pleasant to be around, I'm not pleasant for myself, and it actually ties me back into the stuff we talked about two weeks ago where I actually get in these spins of, of anxiety because there's just not enough, a spirit of fear that says there's just not enough. I think the other way that a spirit of fear plays out in my life and it is an enemy of contentment in, in my reality of living in Christ and in this world is, is it drives me the other way. It's a spirit of comparison, of envy or of greed that also says there's just not enough. But it's this insatiable desire for me to have more. And there's this human ambition that rises up in me. And if I'm honest, that's not making me content either. Again, it leads me to the same things. The anxiety, the lack of peace. It causes me to just want more and more and more. No matter how much I have, it's just not enough. Again, neither of those are the place of peace that Paul talked about two weeks ago. Nor is it the place of living in contentment. Why? Because again, both of those places are causing me to have my eyes set on myself and on my circumstances and on other people and what they have and what I don't have versus this attitude, this mindset, this faith that says, you know what, where I am right now, if God is allowing me to be in this position, whether it's of much or of little, 
I can endure this. I can live through this. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Why? Because Christ is my very life and my satisfaction, not anything else. Another enemy of content that I would be, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't address it. Can we talk a little bit about American evangelical prosperity gospel? The American evangelical prosperity gospel church, I think honestly, is, is an enemy of contentment for us that we've got to acknowledge. But there is a gospel that is preached. There is a gospel that is held pretty highly and within our own American evangelicalism that just says following Jesus means that life is always going to be up and to the right on the four-part chart. You know what I'm saying? That because I follow Jesus, because I know him, there's never going to be pain in my reality. There's never going to be suffering. There's never going to be injustice for me or the people around me. I'm always going to have enough. I'm always going to have not just my needs, but all my desires. Because Jesus said if I love him and if I follow him and if I abide in him, that I can pray and ask for whatever I want and he's going to give it to me. Well, that's another verse taken out of context. And evangelical Christianity with the prosperity gospel will hold that up and say, yeah, 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 that's, that's what it means to be satisfied or to have successful life in Christ. And I think we just got to be honest to say, that's not emotionally healthy spirituality. That's not true in line with the gospel. I think that's been held out in light, again, of those two enemies of the spirits of fear. Both a scarcity mindset plays into that, and also a comparison and greed cultural mindset plays into that. I think we've got to be aware and awake to that within our own hearts and minds, that where do I perceive or think that just because I'm a follower of Jesus, it means I'm never going to face any pain, any moments of lack, any moments of uncertainty. Paul says if you find yourself there like he did, you can still have contentment you can still live into the reality of the truth of the gospel. Why? Because again, it's not based upon that pie chart, that pie graph, or where it's going. But it's Christ who is your life that allows you to have this sense of fulfillment and satisfaction that is contained within the love that God has for you and that is within you. You in Christ and Christ in you. Your source of contentment. Paul goes on and he writes more about thanksgiving, and he wants to give them an, another lesson. I want to read that briefly. He says in verse 14, he says, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church ended in a partnership we in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I'm seeking the gift. Again, similar as he said, not that I'm in need. Not that I'm seeking the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, Paul here again moves towards that, that, that vein of, of thanksgiving, but he's saying this basically, I'm thankful for the gift and I'm glad about it, but not necessarily because of my need. Again, I've received full payment, but because of what it says to me about you, about where you are. See, I think Paul's writing this all, or I know he's writing all of this, again, in context of the two major themes that he's been talking about throughout this book, and one of them being joy, and the second one being where we've kind of camped in, in Philippians 1.27, where Paul writes and he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So I want to talk for a moment, because I think Paul does that here. How does contentment, as Paul is talking about, and living a life worthy of the manner of the gospel of Christ, where, where do those things connect? 
What, what does that mean? What is that? What's Paul saying there? So I think Paul was focusing on the fact that it's not so much about the gift, again, but it's about the heart of the giver. Paul rejoiced because he recognized the gift and the generosity as a fruit of their faith in the gospel. Paul wanted to encourage and affirm that what they had given had actually not been given to them, but it had been given to the Lord, and, and they, he wanted to affirm that he believed that God was receiving their gift for him as a sweet-smelling aroma, much like in the Old Testament, God's people were uh, commanded and, and invited to go into the, into the place of worship and to light incense and as an offering, a sweet-smelling aroma. They were to make sacrifices in that regard. And that God would know that they, they, were, they were acknowledging him in the midst of all their life. That God would know that they were acknowledging his presence. That God would know that they were walking with him and they were seeking his heart. Paul's saying, when we live in a place of contentment and we actually then move out of ourself because we know that we have everything supplied that we need, and we begin to actually see the needs of others, as Paul says here, that you shared in my trouble. That we see the needs of others, and we partner in the gospel, and we give towards that, and we work towards that together. Paul's saying that shows God that we're actually living in this place where we are truly content in him, and it moves us out, not in selfish ambition, I, I'm, there's never going to be enough, or not in fear, there's never going to be enough, but it actually compels us with a gospel ambition which is not the opposite of contentment, but is a fruit of contentment. The ability, again, to look outside of ourselves and to see there are people with much greater needs, pains, and hurts in this world that don't have the gospel and don't know Christ, that don't have their basic needs met, that are sitting in places of prison or sitting in places of hurt, sitting in places of great lack and of great need. And Paul says, I'm rejoicing and I'm thanking you again to your gift that you gave to me, not because I have need, because I, I, I'm fully content in Christ, because it, but it shows me, Philippians, that you yourselves are on this track of learning contentment as well. And I, I rejoice in that, because that's fruit of the gospel in you. That's fruit of God's love in you. That's fruit of your understanding who you are in Christ and what you're called to do in this world. See, church, one of the things that's interesting, and as I was thinking about this, and as the teaching team and I were talking about this, clearly Paul here is talking about money and finances. Clearly he's talking about contentment in light of God's provision. But I think the truth that's here, we can and need to talk and think about it far beyond even just material contentment. Do you know what I'm saying? Because our lives are not made up just of material contentment. But I'm, I'm a relational being. And at times there's contentment or lack thereof in, in my relationships. I'm a spiritual being, and at times there is contentment or lack thereof in the way I feel of my, about my spiritual health or those things going on. I'm an emotional being, and at times I've got contentment or lack thereof, again, in, in the state of my emotions and in my well-being. And what do I do with that? How do I function in that? How do I live as one who's a follower of Jesus and still begin to bear fruit, begin to learn where true contentment comes from and bear fruit in this world and in the lives of others that, that is rising to God as, as, a, as an aroma of, of a sweet-smelling sacrifice, saying, yes, Lord, in the midst of all this, no matter where I am, no matter what's going on, God, I, I believe that you're my source of life. You know, we've, we've lived through, what, two years now of a pandemic, right? Two years of, of the realities of, of racial injustice, two years of economic turmoil, two years of, again, the, the pandemic, we, we realized it's, it didn't produce a lot of new things, but what it did is it surfaced a lot of new things, right? Or brought them to light in a way it hadn't before. 
And the tension of that, the turmoil of that, the, a lot of reason. I, think, I, don't, I don't think Paul would look at us and go, you guys have no reason to be discontent. That'd be ridiculous. But again, the invitation to look and go, man, yeah, over the last two years, two and a half years, there's been, in a sense, this, this spirit of, of scarcity to a degree, right? I mean, we, we, we've intentionally, out of wisdom and out of obedience, even we've, we've had to close off and we've had to kind of go small and think about what does it mean to protect ourselves or to think about these things. There's, there was, do you guys remember in the beginning when toilet paper was like this scarce resource? Yeah. I remember actually the very first, I was thinking about this because the very first talk that I gave to you guys where I was standing behind a computer and y'all were on Zoom for that first time, I remember holding toilet paper and going, oh my gosh, like, does anybody have any? You know, I mean, like, it was just this, you go to Costco and it's like, ah, you know? I mean, that, 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 that initial, uh, right, from the beginning of the pandemic and it just was after, yeah, next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. So many ways in which the, 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 incubator of the last two and a half years again has pressed and pushed on us and would lead us to this place of, of fear of scarcity of of holding off of even moving inward and thinking i'm self-sufficient i've got to be self-sufficient in the midst of this because i can't count on or trust anymore these systems or these things are all of that as i was thinking about this week i think this message is so relevant for us church in light of all that and we got to be honest about where are the places where we are caught in that spirit of fear that would say, there's not enough, there never will be enough, or there's not enough and I've got to go out and get more for myself. And to look truly at the person and the work of Christ and the love of God revealed for us there and allow it to meet us deep in the places, right? There's always, there's always the issue behind the issue, right? <laughs> there's always the idol behind the idol, Right? There's always this knowledge, again, that we try to put on top to cover over, to bury the pain and the hurt, but the knowledge doesn't save, the knowledge doesn't rescue. Paul says it's, it's allowing yourself to be honest in the place of where you truly are and looking at who Christ is, even in the ups, even in the downs, in the midst of all of it, to look at Jesus and to believe that he alone is your life, your sufficiency, and the place that you find your satisfaction. I think Paul would have lived through this pandemic. He would sit here, and I'm not trying to idolize Paul or put him on a pedestal. Again, he's honest about his weaknesses as well. But I think he would look at us and he would say, Church, can you stay with me? Can you seek with me? Can you believe with me that you can do all things through Christ in this season, no matter what he's calling you to, because he is your strength. He is your life. Church, this week actually is um, Palm Sunday. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. I can't believe Easter's just next week. So this is, this is Holy Week that we're heading into. And I was thinking about and reading in the Gospels the accounts of Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem. Do you guys remember those accounts? It says that Jesus told his disciples, go up to this Jerusalem and go get that donkey and tell them that it's, it's for the Lord and they'll, they'll listen to you and they'll give you that donkey. And so they brought the donkey and he puts a cloak on it and he jumps on top and he, he rides in in fulfillment of the prophets that said, here comes your king lowly and riding on a donkey. And they lay down before him their cloaks. They lay down before him these palm branches. And they acknowledged him. They say the words from Psalm 118. They say, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means Lord, save us. And they lay those down before him, acknowledging, seeing him as their king. And Jesus enters in, I believe, in joy. Jesus enters in and embraces this celebration. But what we find out as soon as he enters Jerusalem, do you guys remember what happened next? Depending on which gospel you read, there's a recording that says Jesus actually wept over the city. Because he looks and he says, oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem. 
if you only would have come to me like a mother hen gathers her chicks, if you would have come to me, I would have cared for you. I would have protected you. I would have led you. I would have fed you. I would have given lavishly on you the blessings and the things that you are seeking and trying to find elsewhere. I have those. They're all contained within me. And I'm here. I'm riding in to give them to you. If only you would see this. And then the very next scene, again, depending on the Gospels, that he actually he goes into the courtyards of the church. And what does he do? He flips the tables. He grabs the whip and he, he moves out all the sellers, all these consumer activity that's going on within the house of God. And he goes from this place of, of joy and celebration, moving into this place of, of, of discontentment and sad and grief, and then moving to a place actually of, of anger, <laughs> of holy discontent. So I don't think what Paul is saying, I don't think what the scriptures are saying, I don't think what I want you to hear me saying is that there's no room or no place for discontent. You know what I'm saying? There are reasons for discontent. There are reasons for celebration and joy coupled with grief and sadness and anger. That's all part of a healthy human emotional reality. That's all part of our lives. But I think the reason why looking and reading these articles, again, talking about prosperity and discontentment in our nation ever since stuff has been recorded and now and, and seeing we're somewhat in the same exact places, I think it's because we have not figured out as a humanity that yes, life is joy and celebration, but it's also sorrow and grief and anger. And when we're in the moments of, of celebration, we're thinking, oh, it's because we're self-sufficient and we did it. Or when in the moments of grief and anger, we're going, oh my gosh, this is despair and this is all there is. And we haven't figured out how do we live in a healthy way and hold that tension as Jesus did. We haven't figured out what to do with our emotions. And so what we do is we actually then go bury them or we go and try and fulfill it in these other things. And we end up back in this place of discontentment because none of those things were meant or created to satisfy save Christ himself alone. Jesus rides in on that donkey and it causes me to think about this. Why did he do it? Let me ask you this. What's your greatest need? If we're talking about contentment and need, what's your greatest need, honestly? I was sharing with the guys in EHS on Thursday night that I'm acutely aware in this season of just, man, my, my brokenness. You guys have heard me say that different times. For some reason, I'm in a new season of that. I'm just, going, I'm just acutely aware of my brokenness. I'm acutely aware of, of the things that I think sometimes, the things that I want to say, the things, the way that I feel. I've been reminded this this week, my greatest need, y'all, is a savior. I, I cannot save myself. I cannot save myself from the things that I feel, the things that I think, the ways I want to react. I, I cannot save myself. And I cannot save anything in the world that I want to. But if I sit and I'm honest about all of that, and invite Christ to sit with me in that, or open my eyes to acknowledge and see that he already is sitting with me in that, I can come back to this place where slowly I'm learning, as Paul said, I've learned whatever, whatever situation to be content. I'm learning, I, I can do it. I can live life. I, I can do all things through Christ who gives me my strength. I was meditating this week then on a couple of verses, Romans 8, 31 to 32, where Paul is talking about, again, craziness and tragedy and all this stuff, persecution, hardship. And he says, what then, though, should we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? This is what we celebrate this week, church. Is that Christ came in riding on that donkey as proof of what? Our greatest need is a Savior, and our greatest need has sufficiently been met in Christ. That God is for us, and he knows our needs, and he's shown us that by giving us sufficiently to solve our greatest need. He's given us his son, Jesus. And if he's given you Christ, and if you by faith are in Christ and the spirit of the living Christ is within you, what will God not give you? What will his grace not supply for you that you then have to live in fear and grasping and discontent? The other verse I turned to this week just to process this on my own was this, 2 Corinthians 8 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That Christ himself knew what it was like to live high, right? But he became low, he became nothing, so that what? You and I in our low state could actually be raised up to a place of true life, a place of true satisfaction, a place of true abundance and contentment, not found in the things of this world, but found in Christ himself. To wrap this up, I want to I give, um, give you a very practical, what I think would be a practical spiritual practice to, to engage and consider and think about even this week. Uh, where, where are you in terms of contentment and allowing Christ to be your contentment? I was really blessed over the last two weeks that um, I had a handful of people in the last two weeks respond or reach out or have conversations saying, you know what, the practical things you gave us two weeks ago, talking about anxiety and peace, that those were really helpful. Some people actually who are struggling with really deep anxiety came and said, you know what, I, I heeded that spiritual practice advice of just going prostrate and worshiping. One gal even said, in the midst of that, I heard God speak to me clearly like I haven't in years. He gave me three simple words and it was exactly what I needed. And she said, I was able to sleep that night. So I offer you this spiritual practice, not as a magic bullet, but again, I, I want us to be growing as a community, but again, not as just looking at this stuff and going, okay, in my head, I got this, but learning how do we actually live this out? How do we join Paul in that journey where he said, I have learned in whatever situation to be content? It's a learning. It's a, it's a process. It's an engagement. It's working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says in Philippians 3. Here's the spiritual practice. I want to invite you this week to make a list, or maybe make a pie chart, however, whatever works for you, of your reasons for joy and celebration, your reasons for sadness and grief, and your reasons for anger. Why, why am I doing that? Again, this week, today, we celebrate and remember that Jesus rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem. And on his way to the cross, what did Jesus himself live through? The one who I believe was ultimately content in God and in the things of his Father. Ultimately content. Ultimately self-contained. Self-sufficient. Inwardly satisfied in God and his communion with the Spirit. He experienced joy and celebration. But he also experienced sadness and grief. And he experienced anger. And he took all of that and he brought it before the Father. He took all of that and he acknowledged it. He took all of that 
And he said, God, if I'm going to go to the cross and do the thing that you're inviting and calling me to do, I have to not look around at my circumstances. I have to not look around at the world around me. What I have to do is keep my eyes fixed and focused on you and allow you, Lord God, to be the one who strengthens me. And so I offer you this practice this week, church, to, to write down, make a list. Don't judge yourself for which one's bigger than the other, thinking, oh, it's, it should be the joy and celebration that's bigger. No, you might find yourself in a place where sadness and grief is the biggest portion of your list or of your pie chart this week. Hold that graciously before God. You might find that it's anger, holy discontentment that is the largest on your pie chart or on your list. Again, don't, don't judge yourself for that. But in each of these categories, I invite you to hold it then before the Lord Bring it to him and invite him to reveal to you his presence. Reveal to you where he is with you. Reveal, ask him to reveal to you where his grace is at work in the midst of these things and how he's inviting you to fix your eyes upon him and to seek him to say, Jesus, I believe that through you I can do all things because you are my life and my strength. I'll close with this. Paul closes up this section of his letter prior to his final greeting, but he says, and I believe this, that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, I want to invite you to, to stand with me, and I just I want to pray over us a blessing of this verse as Kelly comes to lead us in worship. So I think one of the things that I've wrestled with again this week looking at this is that contentment doesn't come through having all of my needs sufficiently met. It doesn't come through quantity of anything that I have. It doesn't come through what I have, but through whom I have. And it comes through this reality of actually having some core convictions about who God is and the way that he's provided for me in every area of my life. And Paul says this. This is a conviction I've been thinking about this week. Paul says I'm convinced, I believe, that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so church, I, just, I want to invite you to, to stand with me. And if, if you would, if you just close your eyes as we can enter into worship, and if you would acknowledge that, that you're in a place where there's, there's discontent, whether it's one where you would acknowledge is driven out of that spirit of fear, or it's one that is even wholly discontent because you look around and you believe that there is gospel ambition that is compelling you towards places of just being dissatisfied. And just to hold your hands open before the Lord and acknowledge and this, this is where I am. God, this morning we come before you. We've been before you. You've been here with us not just here this morning, but through this journey of the last two and a half years and far beyond that, through the journey of 10 years, 30 years, 40 years, 7 years, whatever it is, God, we acknowledge your grace. We acknowledge the gift of life through your son, Jesus. We acknowledge that he was the one that had everything, equality with you, God. And yet, he said, I'm not holding on to that. I'm not going to grasp that. I'm going to release and let go of that so that I can enter in to be with them, to share in their experience, to walk it out, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus, what a gift. Father, thank you for revealing and showing the sufficiency of your love for us through giving, through sending your son Jesus into this world. Jesus, thank you for fixing your eyes upon the Father 
listening to the Spirit, finding your contentment in life with God, modeling that for us, showing us the way, even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus, thank you for coming humbly, lowly, riding on a donkey, in fulfillment of God's promise to show us that you are God's provision for us in every area of our life. God, this morning as I read Paul's words that says, I believe and I trust that God will provide for all of your needs more than sufficiently through Christ Jesus. God, I I wrestle with that and I've got to tease through, again, the ways that my prosperity gospel has, has tainted that and I hear that God will supply everything and I think it's just about material. So help me uncouple that lie from the things that I'm thinking about. God, I think about my own experiences, human experiences and moments of true lack and of true need and maybe some of the scars or trauma and hurt and pain of that. And so I've got to try to decouple that as well from just the pain and the the things that I hear in my head, the lies. God, I I hear too in the places and times when I've had a lot and I've been abounding like Paul would write and there's the applause of man and there's the money that comes with it and there's the accolades and there's all that stuff and how much I've allowed my worth and my value and my contentment to be tied to that. And so those experiences too, God, it taints all the ways that that I hear and think and feel about this content this morning. So Lord, have mercy on me for that. Have mercy on us for that. But God, we hold our hands open before you this morning just to release to let go, to let go of a scarcity mindset, whichever camp we find ourselves in, to let go of fear, to let go of of anger that's not aligned with with you and your heart. And God, I, I pray for the blessing this morning of your grace. Pray for a blessing this morning of your spirit. God, would you work and would you move in our hearts and in our minds and even in our hands, God, to Release us and free us, God, from the fear, from the anxiety, from the worries, from the cares. But to look today, to look this week, to consider your journey this week to the cross, Jesus, and to look upon it and to believe and know that your death is for our life. And that, God, you did not spare your only son, and so will you not also give us and meet us in the places of need through your love and through your son Jesus. So God, I release this morning your peace. I release a spirit of trust and surrender. I release a spirit of contentment and of joy and of celebration. And I release again, God, your grace that would allow us too to look at the sadness and the grief and the anger and to hold it before you and to allow your spirit and your voice to meet and speak to us there. Jesus, we enter into this week with you in an honest posture of just humility and of surrender. God, I release your love into this place, into this people, into this church in order, God, that we would be content and satisfied in you and be empowered to look out beyond ourselves and to meet the needs of those who you've called us to, who you'll put in our path this week and the months and the years ahead. God, we trust this morning that your grace is sufficient, that your love is our contentment. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.